Who is this SOB? Yeah, like who does he think he is? My thought exactly. Who is this SOB? Who is this SOB? This is Steve Noble, conservative, Bible-thumping, Southern Baptist, syndicated talk radio show host, and am I that SOB? I certainly have been guilty of that in terms of how I've interacted with people I don't agree with, including my own kids, and perhaps people just like you. So whether you're a liberal or a conservative, gay or straight, black or white, a Christian, an atheist, or a follower of some other faith, I hope I won't be quite the SOB you might expect me to be. Only time will tell. On today's episode, another interview format like the one I did recently with my son. That was called Son of an SOB, which I hope you'll check out. Uh, But this time, one of my former students who grew up in a large conservative evangelical church and recently graduated from the Mecca of Christian Colleges, Liberty University, I would throw in a little Jerry Falwell Jr. That should ring a bell if you're paying attention. Uh, But hey, if you like the podcast, please subscribe, tell your friends, and be sure to follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook under Who Is This SOB? Or check out the website at whoisthissob.com. Okay, let's dive into our conversation with Chad Wiley. Hey, pal, uh, how are you? Welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here. I'm really excited to be talking to you. I feel like We've been interacting on these kind of issues for years now, so this feels like a really natural thing to do. Yes, first time uh, in class, which was a while ago. Which Did you take both my classes or just one? Yeah, I took your ethics okay. class and I took your civics class, but before that, you were a guest speaker at Team Pact. Oh, that's right. And that was, uh, even before that, we were, I was listening to you then. So you were in there. How would you... And we're gonna we're gonna unpack a lot today. We'll we'll do a little bit about Chad's background so that you understand, because uh, similar to my son's background, he, the, you guys grew up in a very similar context, very conservative evangelical environment. Off to college, he went to a school in Florida. You went to Liberty, which of course most people are like, oh yeah, that's that big Christian college, and we'll talk about that. Uh, and then you you don't exactly hold the same exact opinions as your parents and and your generation versus my generation. There's a lot there, which I'm thankful to God that these conversations. I'm starting to do more of this with the podcast, but uh, we'll talk about your background first. Then we'll talk about your your experience at Liberty, uh, kind of some political things going on because we've interacted on social media, like you just mentioned. So we'll kind of unpack that relationship, and then out of we out of that, we're going to end up talking about a lot of different things that uh, people are talking about, and especially this kind of divide, whether it's inside kind of the quote unquote church family, where we have parents like me and like yours and our kids, your generation, which are not exactly uh, a clone. <laughs> so we've got that. And then people inside the church, outside the church. So we got a lot to talk about uh, and young people in general, uh, but we'll get all get to all that. So how would you describe basically your upbringing? Then we'll talk about just r- real briefly our interaction in class and what was that like, but just describe for people kind of what it was like growing up in your world. Yeah. So I grew up in the same area my whole life, at the same church my whole life where my dad's a pastor. I have one younger brother and then it was just the two of us, my mom and my dad, um, a fairly conservative Christian upbringing, um, heard the gospel my entire life, wasn't saved till I was 12 because I had this uh, kind of not resentment toward church, but just the idea that I was doing and saying the right things and everyone else thought I was a Christian. So obviously I was. Turns out that's not how you get saved. Right, right. right. And so- uh, Just because you're in a garage doesn't mean you're a car. Yeah. Had my own, uh, made my faith my own. And then um, probably around 16 or 17, being involved in Team Pact, your classes, other classes, really started to explore where I am politically. Uh, Started off as a um, early Trump supporter. I definitely have seen my views change. They're still changing. And I know that I'm far from a finished product, but- 
my upbringing has always been a willingness to be exposed to lots of different ideas. Uh, my one set of my grandparents are uh, never Trump Democrats who supported the only Republican they've ever voted for is Ronald Reagan. My other set of grandparents are very conservative and they're both, you know, sending me books, trying to sway me. My, <laughs> my parents are different in the in politically. Uh, all my friends are different politically. So um, I always tried to just listen to everybody and then try to see where I fell into it. And my parents really helped me explore for myself. And that was really, really good. Yeah. So that that's really helpful because I think for if you're if you're a person that's outside that world, outside the church, outside of the Christian kind of bubble, outside of conservative Christianity, and looking in, you you we kind of assume there's a homogeneous kind of environment where everybody we want everybody to be the same, which I think largely is true. Uh, that we do kind of put. Did you feel that like like? And you kind of sounded like you were going there that. You know, you grow up in the church, your dad's a pastor, it's all, everything's conservative about it. Conservative from a theological Bible perspective, conservative from a political perspective. And that's just who you're supposed to be. And so was that some of the, did you kind of feel that pressure growing up? Yeah, I would say, I would say not just like the way that I lived personally with my dad being a pastor and the, kind of that spotlight being on me, but just you, when you go to church, you see people who are the same. And they generally think the same and they all, you know, we have our doctrinal statement and everyone, everyone agrees to it. And if you look at it politically, it's going to be pretty much uniform as well. And yeah. my friend groups were all the same. And it really wasn't until I went to college that I really started to, and you might not expect this at Liberty, but started to see differences, yeah. even at a college like Liberty, which you would expect to be yeah. kind of an extension of my church. Yeah. So, so especially in your high school years, Teen Pack, for those that don't know, Teen Pack is a kind of a Christian political ministry teaching students in high school, usually on site at the state's capital all about the political process. How does how does a bill become a law? How does that all work? And some role playing. It's a great organization, uh, but most people there are, are conservative. Uh, we have some mutual friends, and my my former intern Callan, uh, who was uh, definitely starting to move left, and he really struggled being in that environment because people would think he was crazy. Of course, he probably thought they were crazy too. But you don't have much exposure to opinions outside of that bubble, so. How would you have described yourself politically as you finished high school? And then let's talk about liberty. Yeah, as I finished high school, I, I voted in the 2016 general election in the primary. And that was in my senior year of high school. Who'd you vote for in the primary? In the primary, I voted for Ted Cruz. Okay, me too. And in the general election, I voted for Donald Trump. What'd you think of Trump in the primary? At, at many points, I just thought that he was like funny like I, I remember when he, I remember I was in a hotel in Wyoming when he announced his campaign. We were watching on TV, and I was like, "This is just like a, a joke. Like he's right. just trying to like, you know, this is just another Trump thing." Yeah, like, it's another like, Trump TV show, right? And then it turns out like he's serious, and I felt that I, I I did feel myself getting swept up in the wow, this guy's different kind of feel, which happened to me again in 2020 with Andrew Yang in a different way. Yeah. But that kind of outsider mentality. Our son too. Yeah. Was a big Andrew Yang guy. That outsider mentality really appealed to me and it really appealed to all of my friends. Yeah. And there were obviously things that he said that I was like, wait a second, that just, that, that's just not right. Or that just, but I had a feeling and I voted for him with the idea that you know, he was going to shake things up, but he would take the presidency seriously. And that might sober his rhetoric. It might sober yeah. his Twitter. He would mature through the process. Yeah. Which, you know, expecting a 71 year old man to mature, it seems like, you know, <laughs> that kind of happened a long time ago, yeah. but yeah, 
Yeah, it definitely yeah. was Old one of those. Old dog, new tricks. Yeah, I was, I was a, to answer your question, I was a Trump supporter, conservative, Republican at the time I graduated. Would you, would you, have, would you have worn a MAGA hat at the time? I had one. You did? I did. See, I could never bring myself to wear a MAGA hat. I did have one. It wasn't, it wasn't the traditional red one. It was like a little bit, it had like the American flag. It's a little more it. understated yeah, than but the it, big red MAGA hat. It said make America great again. It had the whole thing on it. So, <laughs> so, so off you go to Liberty. So why Liberty? And then what were your assumptions about Liberty? Because for those of you that maybe aren't familiar with Liberty, Liberty University literally is one of the biggest universities in America. Massive. What is it, like 60,000 students now because of the online presence? Almost 100,000 if, oh if you include online. Yeah, so it's incredibly massive. This was uh, Jerry Falwell Sr. started it. He was a big conservative Christian, kind of started the whole Christian right movement back in the 80s during Ronald Reagan's presidential run, which is when all that started. Then Jerry Jr. took it over and then Jerry Jr. knows how to raise money. And, and, and the endowment just exploded. There's all kinds. Of, so when in the Christian bubble, kind of in that evangelical, even conservative Christian bubble, everybody knows what liberty is. Liberty is like the Harvard law of Christian colleges in terms of its notoriety. And then it's got all the baggage with Jerry Falwell Jr., which we'll talk about. But going there, why was that your choice? Uh, to be perfectly honest, scholarships. Yeah, that's a um, good reason. I didn't really have a lot of things that I was looking at in school other than who would, where could it be the most financially accessible? Yeah. It wasn't like yeah. I wanted a Christian atmosphere, which I turned out being a big blessing for me, but that's not something I was actively seeking out. Yeah. Liberty definitely, when you go, they advertise well when you go to visit. It feels like the funnest summer camp you've ever been to in your life. <laughs> and it's an incredible facility. Yeah. And oh, so much of it's new. Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful campus. The professors will rock your world. They're all incredible. The, um, the, yeah, like you mentioned, the facilities, the athletics programs getting better. There's so many things that make it so appealing. You know, you go to the convocation and it's just like 15,000 people all doing worship songs and listening to pastoring. It's, it's just an incredible, you feel like it's a place where you can grow spiritually. And well, like I mentioned, I was, that's not something I was looking for, yeah. but it is something I ended up benefiting from. Did, did you, was there any reluctance for you to go there? Like, oh gosh, I'm going to Liberty. That's where all the church kids go. And Not especially. The, the reluctance was I, I was going somewhere out of state where I didn't really know anybody. And yeah. that was just like a personal comfort zone issue. But I honestly didn't know a whole lot about Jerry Falwell at the time. I didn't really know a whole lot about the school. I wasn't, you know, I would, I would, I would pay attention to the news, but Liberty you know, back in 2017, which was my freshman year, Liberty wasn't in the news in the same way it is now. Yeah. And so you really didn't even know a whole lot about Jerry and Trump and all that kind of stuff. So you went there, not jaded, expecting great things, great teachers, beautiful facility. I mean, one of the nicest campuses in America, really. Uh, and so what, what was your actual experience once you're getting in there? Yeah, when I'm getting in there, the the dynamic on the hall is supernatural. The spiritual community is very grassroots, it's very authentic, it's very organic. It starts kind of on your hall with the people that are becoming your friends. Uh, I had a great roommate. He was also a journalism major who loved sports. He and I just connected right away. Um, really, so, is sports journalism your plan from the get go? My yeah, I was I was a journalism major. My ultimate goal at the time was when I first started going was to go to law school. And then that ended up taking a backseat because I ended up loving what I was doing in journalism as a result of both Liberty and going to the World Journalism Institute with World Magazine and being under their teaching for about three weeks. Uh, really gave me a passion to do communications in that way. But, you know, my first semester, I remember 
Convo was kind of just one of those things where you, you kind of had to go to and occasionally there'd be some politician. But So how I, would you describe convocation to somebody that doesn't have a clue what you're talking about? Yeah, convocation. that's kind of Christian evangelical college language. Yeah, convocation is a three times a week weekly gathering of all of the residential students. And it starts with a time of worship. It's in a massive circular auditorium that holds about 15,000 Starts with a time of worship, and then there's going to be some sort of speaker. Like a kind of a mini church service. Almost. Yeah, yeah. A lot of times it's a pastor. Sometimes it's a musician or an athlete. People like Ray Rice, uh, Steph Curry, um, Benjamin Watson, athletes like that. Influential figures like uh, Ted Cruz, Ben Carson, Donald Trump's come. Liberals like uh, Bernie Sanders have come and really? spoken. Yeah, oh, Bernie Sanders has been there. Wow. He When he was running in 2016, he came to speak at Liberty. Got to give him um, some props for that. Yeah, it was very brave of him. Um, I mean, Liberty. Yeah, yeah. It was incredible. He actually, his speech on YouTube, you can look it up. It was very interesting. He, hmm. he said, he opened his speech by saying, I know that you and I are going to disagree on a lot of things, but I'm going to use the Bible and talk about the issues that we both care about. And kind of just broke down biblically, you know, things that he thought that there would be agreement on. What was the reaction on campus to him? Because that's like oil and water to the max. Yeah, uh, there were no vocally. It was very polite and very respectful. Um, You know, there was audible boos when he when he said, "I'm pro-choice," which you know he said. But overall, the reception was good. It was respectful. People like wanted to hear what he had to say, and I think people were also just shocked that he actually came. (laughs) Oh man! Like, well, look, I'm shocked. I didn't know that. Yeah, but so yeah, that kind of atmosphere and. Uh, so just a diverse group of speakers you're hearing. The idea of it is just being influenced by people all around the spectrum of jobs, careers, vocations. Was convocation required? Did you have to go? Yeah, yeah, you had to go. You can only miss like one a semester. So the assumption from the outside looking in, and then uh, I came up there, was it this January or a year before? Uh, the year before. A year before. Yeah. I came up there, you know, working on some ideas for podcasts. And, and one idea was what we're doing now, which is to have a conversation uh, with college students, younger generation, about a bunch of different things. The assumption being, here I am, this white, older, uber conservative, Southern Baptist talk show guy. And college students are not the same. So to just to foster, because we don't do conversation anymore. We just lob stuff at each other across the digital space. But uh it was fascinating to come up there and there was one girl, I think she was from Oklahoma who was self-described as pretty liberal who chose to go there. So I was surprised that it wasn't as homogeneous as I thought it would be. So what, what was that like for you to get in there at Liberty and and start to discover actually there were other opinions? Yeah. Uh, her name was Casey. She was a writer for me at the champion, uh, which is the student newspaper that I worked for. And I, I really do think that I wasn't exposed to people who might have disagreed with the conservative ideology until I went into journalism. And, you know, the stereotypes about that field being more liberal are certainly true, even at the college level. That was even at Liberty. Yeah, at Liberty at the college level. You know, most of my friends who would be described themselves as moderate to liberal would have been in the journalism uh, field in my classes, in my major writing for the newspaper. And so. That was definitely where I was starting to discover my voice, where I was trying to kind of place myself on the spectrum somewhere. And that's where I was starting to just identify what issues were most important to me. But it was part seeing it was part seeing liberal Christians and how that can work. And then the other part was just seeing. So liberal politically. Yeah. Pretty conservative biblically from yeah. an understanding of the Bible, mm-hmm. but they ended up being on the left side, the left aisle politically. Yeah. Was that a mystery to you at first? Cause like for me, and this always, it leads to difficult conversations. And I, I've had this conversation with my son. 
Hayden, you know, son of an SOB. He loved Andrew Yang. And I'm like, but Andrew Yang supports abortion, literally the New York style, right up to the point of delivery. So how can you be a Christian, a biblical Christian? He's a pro-life Christian, but yet he's willing to give his vote to an uber pro-choice liberal Democrat. And, and in my world, at my age, I'm like, that's a non-starter. That's like oil of why? How could you ever do that? Actually, I don't understand a Christian that does that. You're totally selling your soul. You might as well uh, take off the MAGA hat and put on the Satan hat. You know, I work for the devil. I mean, that's how we react to that. But for you, in encountering that a liberal politically, but yet a Christian, was that was that weird for you? At first, yeah. Yeah. I mean, growing up, you didn't really have any people who were no. described as liberal no, Christians. No, it's safe in our bubble. Yeah. What what were – like, I don't know. You just couldn't mesh those two things. <laughs> right, right. But having those conversations, it was definitely interesting. Um, I met a guy who was uh, – he told me that he was he was homosexual and he was a devout Christian. And I, I, I just had some really, really authentic questions like, you know, how do you justify the New Testament teaching with that? And, you know, he gave me some books that I looked into and yeah. some of it – some of it did seem doctrinally. Was he living out his? He was active homosexual. Yeah, he well, yeah, okay. uh, he wasn't in a relationship, but he had come out to his parents and yeah. to those around him as, okay. in that way. And um, I never knew him like in a homosexual relationship. Any any type of relationship at Liberty is found upon heterosexual <laughs> or homosexual. But um, regardless of that, I do think that you know there were some there were some people where i would disagree with their doctrinal interpretation of scripture but the the the, the other main thing i saw was people who were just detaching what they v- viewed the purpose of government as with their biblical mandate so like something like homosexuality can be immoral but it's not the government's job to legislate yeah. that some people will say the same thing about abortion abortion right and so kind i'm personally pro life right but I don't think it's the government's role to come in and tell people yeah, what they should do. Yeah, even someone like like Barack Obama or Bill Clinton who campaigned the idea of like making abortion legal, safe, and rare. Right. Like, you know, we don't like it. but it's, And so I think that whole idea is something that pe- people in my generation are viewing their Christian mandate as a relational thing. You know, what, something you do relationally, one-on-one with people, and it's not as much a cultural thing that they vote on. So we have two different silos. Mm-hmm. We have my biblical beliefs over here in this silo, and then we have my political beliefs over here in this side. Yeah. And, the, and and there's going to be some crossover. I can take some things out of the, this silo, my religious silo, and I could take some things out of my political silo, and I can put them into a third bucket where they mingle and they're fine and it seems to be consistent. But then I can have other things where I'm like, yeah, I'm pro-life. Of course I am. That's that's what the Bible teaches. But yeah. I'm willing to vote for a Democrat who's uber pro-choice. And, and that's where a lot of this rub is. We know it exists in, from your generation to my generation and inside the church, like your interest in Andrew Yang, and you can go as far with this as you want or not. Uh, how did your dad react to that? I know your dad, your, your dad's a conservative Christian, just like I am, but how did he react? Yeah, my dad, he, you know, growing up with parent or in laws who were very liberal, yeah, my mom, my brother, and I are all less conservative politically than he is. And like all three of us are, you know, not always going to vote straight party Republican, yeah. like straight down the line. And for, <sighs> for, for, for my dad, it's over. You need to leave now. <laughs> and for my dad, that was really, really weird. Like he was like, you know, but <laughs> yeah. politics wasn't something that we discussed a whole lot in the household. He, he thought that, you know, I, and I told him, you know, I just think Andrew Yang, like, I like the way he, like, he's just funny. He's, he thinks differently from people. Yeah. So even my dad was like interested by Yang as like, just like a cultural figure. Sure. Not as, you know, 
not as maybe not policy wise, but just like the way he thinks just seems like it's 10 years ahead of where everyone else right, is. Exactly. And that, yeah. was just, and that was just a different thing. That's what I Hayden might have felt the same way. He did. Yeah. And Hayden's a deep thinker and uh, engaged. The thing that's scary about Hayden for political conservatives that are Christians like me is that he, he, he's not, he doesn't come to his positions emotionally. He comes to his positions intellectually and rationally so he can make a good argument. So when he starts talking about Andrew Yang, my first reaction was betrayal. What the, what the hell are you talking about? You're uh, Steve Noble's son, and you're flirting with Andrew Yang, who's fine, uh, watching uh, babies being murdered. I mean, that that's literally the type of language that was in my mind, sometimes came, coming out of my mouth, which wasn't too productive. But but then when he would, I started listening to Andrew Yang, I'm like, okay, to your point, this guy's kind of ahead of the game on a lot of things. And at least he's thinking yeah, outside of the box. No one else is box. talking about artificial intelligence. No, or... and he's thinking constructively and he can make an argument because he's intellectual. He's yeah. not necessarily emotional. Yeah. And that was really refreshing, even though I disagreed with him on yeah. a lot of things. It was fascinating to me. I think my, my dad and my mom both feel comfortable with the biblical framework that they gave my brother and I. And they feel like we get it. And we do. Yeah. We have a clear biblical conscience. We have a clear biblical mandate. Yeah. We have a biblical ethic. And so they're comfortable with us exploring the political spectrum with that mandate because they know that it's in our hearts and yeah. it's in the way that we live, both my brother and I. And so when we explore political candidates and political ideas, my parents will, you know, say, you know, well, we're, biblically, how can you support this? And they'll make us defend it. They'll yeah. ask us to. Yeah. But you know, it's all we, they, they're 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 confident in the biblical ethic that we have, and so they're willing to let us explore. It's I would say your relationship with your parents in that regard, in quote unquote our world, is rare. I think so, because like I'm sure you have other friends that are experiencing this. Mm -hmm. Grow up in the church, conservative political church, uh, Republican, the assumptive position politically, and then all of a sudden you're down some other roads that don't fit that bill. Uh, so what, what's been your reaction or what is, what's been your observation of what's going on in our little Christian bubble world with that challenge? What have you seen? Yeah. I remember, I don't, I don't know if you know who Ken Ham is. Mm -hmm. uh, of course. He, Answers in Genesis. Yeah. He's come to Colonial a few times. Young Earth guy. For those of you that don't know Ken Ham, big in the Young Earth movement. The, he has the uh, Creation Museum. He built the Ark down there in uh, Covington near St. Louis. Big time Genesis. Answers in Genesis is his. So he's big time in the Christian world, especially homeschooling and people yeah. that believe the Earth is 10,000 years old as opposed to 1.3 billion, whatever. He, he wrote a book called Why They Left. And he comes and Colonial speaks about this yeah. whenever he comes. And it's the idea that, you know, we're losing the next generation. They're leaving the church. And so what that does is it, in my church, at least it created this like fear, like, oh no, they're going to leave. And I think being in some ways at being liberal was kind of like a sign that someone was like, oh, they're, they're, they're on the brink of leaving. <laughs> right. Like, right. What's next? You're going to come out of the closet as a homosexual. Right. I mean, that's literally... I mean, and I'm, we're throwing our own team under the bus here, but we need to be thrown under the bus on that one because we we instill this thing, this fear. And so what happens is I think you guys don't talk, at least not to us. And so we're not having constructive conversations like, thank God, you'd have with your parents. And then the next thing you know, you're off the reservation and then relationships get broken and there's damage done, even inside of a family. Yeah, but there, there's this fear that you know, exploring ideas outside the church is going to cause someone to leave. And there's just this fear that they're losing the next generation. Yeah. And I think the solution to that is 
you know, with with the biblical ethic, let them explore. Sure. Let them ask those hard questions. My dad taught an apologetics class, and it was all about rationalizing what you believe with the logic of it and like with the arguments. And it was all about asking the tough questions. My dad always said, you know, if you ever have an existential faith crisis, don't be scared of that. Yeah. Like this needs to become yours. This and is. It's not my faith in you. It right. has to become something that exactly. you accept. It's such a great point. And then we do this, whether it's inside the church or outside the church, politically right, politically left, because most of us hang out with people that are like us. We all tend to choose the echo chamber. And I can yell across the aisle and say, you guys are all just a big echo chamber. All you But we do the same thing. And so you never get challenged. And in the church, if you don't deal with those hard questions, uh, you're going to have some problems because you're not will you're not ready to have a conversation. You're not ready to be challenged. And the next thing you know, your your faith is on the rocks because it was never that strong in the first place. It was just kind of passed down to you. That's what you were raised in, and that's a that's such a great point. But we need to be willing to do that politically too, and we don't much. And I think I said this to Hayden on the podcast when we did Son of an Sob. I said when you started flirting with political positions on the left. I felt betrayed. I took that personally because you're you're my kid. Forget the fact that I'm an activist and on the radio and all that kind of stuff. But for a, a, a conservative Christian parent, it feels like betrayal. I, your dad's a much softer, gentler person than I am. We're just different. And I love him for that. Uh, but I think most of the time we do it wrong. You guys did it right. But I think most of the time in the church, we've done that wrong, which has created this rift. And then you guys go off to college and you say you've got some uh, politically left or some liberal opinions and we think the whole world's collapsing. But if your faith is real, I'll let God deal with you and your opinions on everything. That's not, I can, I can wait. I, sh I should chill out, right? Yeah. Relax. Steve. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of like, just to, to bring it back to Liberty, yeah. that, that kind of exploration at college, you know, and I, I've always said, I said it before, like, I know I'm not a finished product. I'm still reading tons of books. I'm still exploring theology. I'm, I'm starting to even incorporate theology into what I'm doing professionally at work. And so I'm, I'm exploring and I'm understanding, but Liberty gave me a place to do that, yeah. both because they required theology classes, but also because the political climate at Liberty is so vocal what all, percentage all the time. Of, what percentage of the students at Liberty would you describe as center or left of center? From my conversations? Yeah, just your experience. Less than 20%. All right. So the majority, about 80%, are still conservative. I would say so. But 20% yeah. central central, or left of center. Yeah. Roughly. I, I think that's I think that's what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. How's the 20% treated? There's a lot of uh, we'll get to Jerry Falwell Jr. <laughs> sure, in a minute. Sure. I think the 20%, they're almost viewed as like a novelty. Like, like, like what? Like yeah. you're not like the rest of us. Like, talk about that. And so it, it does foster a lot of conversation. And I know some people who are left of center at Liberty who are just scared to talk about it because they don't want to feel judged. Yeah, they stay in the closet. Yeah. And for me, I, it's not something that at the time I wasn't very political vocally on social media with people, but they, I had a close circle of friends that I was comfortable talking about yeah. those issues with. And it wasn't something I was super public about at the time just because, well, one, I was looking for a job. And two- <laughs> What do you mean by that? You know, just like, it's getting to the point with cancel culture where yeah. you can say one thing and you all gotta, of a sudden you're, people are coming for your head. And I- You gotta I, be very careful right. with your social media footprint. Right. And I was never gonna, I never thought I was gonna say something super offensive, yeah. but you just never know where that trend's That's gonna right. go. That's right. And so, but, so some people were very quiet about it. For me, 
I was kind of, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm an external processor. I think as I, I talk as I yeah, think. You walk, yeah. Do you talk through it? And so I would always preface conversations being like, let me just brainstorm an idea that I'm thinking about. And then I could kind of talk and we could just have that dialogue and maybe I'd change, maybe they'd change, maybe neither of us should change. Yeah. Most likely it was neither of us, but we both learned me and the person I was talking to, we both learned how to defend our positions better as a result of having that conversation. How did you change as a person in starting to deal with people on the other side of the aisle for, for most issues? Because this is what Hayden was talking about in the other podcast, our oldest that, and this was painful to hear, uh, but he was being honest and he was right. You know, because he, he grew up in our home, so there was a lot of marginalization going on. This is what a liberal is. This is what they believe. This is what they think. Here's their problem. And whether we said it overtly or not, we marginalized them. So these are lesser people. These these people are really messed up because they don't know Jesus. Or and this shows up in all their political opinions. Then he goes off to college and he's hanging around with people that have those opinions and homosexuals and stuff like that. And he's like, Hey, these people aren't the nasty people I expected them to be. And I actually like them. And some of them, their arguments are making sense to him. Then he finishes school in, in basically two years, comes home. And this is what he said on the podcast. And then I come home and I'm experiencing the exact same marginalization that I did to other people. But now I'm being marginalized by my own parents. And I was like, oh, that hurts. But he was telling the truth. So how did you kind of work through that? All of a sudden you're dealing with people that don't believe exactly like you do yet. They're nice people. Yeah, that actually, that happened to me first. My first two years of high school, I went to a public charter school. I went to Raleigh Charter in Raleigh downtown. Oh, I forgot that. Yeah, and there, it was an incredible atmosphere of diversity that I had never experienced anywhere else in my life before. And you started out meeting these people. I would say I would say Raleigh Charter was only maybe 50 or 60% Caucasian white. So, you know, very racially diverse. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, you're meeting people from all different races, all different beliefs, and the cool thing about Raleigh Charter was it was very club, club focused, getting in small groups, making organizations, making clubs. And so there was a Republican club and a Democrat club, and they would meet together hmm. and talk. Wow. There was a Christian club, an atheist club, a Muslim club, and I knew people in all three. And I was really, really good friends with people in all three. And, you know, I was in classes with them. I was in group projects with what them. What percentage of that school would you have described today as liberal? Oh, 80%. Oh, see? yeah. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. 80%. And that's so healthy, but we don't do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't like people will talk about it. Yeah. Even the people at the BLM protests and stuff are talking about equality. They're talking about uh, tolerance and everything, but we still tend to just hang out with our own tribes. Yeah. It's rare that we do that. At least from my perspective, I don't think we do that. For my mom, when we were looking at the school, it was kind of just because it was a great school, yeah. uh, just objectively education-wise. But th the unexpected blessing was that diversity where I'm meeting atheists, I'm meeting Muslims, I'm meeting Christians, and we're, our, we're in our clubs and our clubs are meeting together. And like, wow. we're talking. The Republican club and the Democrat club did like little like stage debates, but not just formal debates, just like talking about issues. And it was like, you know, I'm friends with you. I love to play Frisbee with you in PE class, but I disagree with you on this worldview, but you're still my friend. And so there comes a, there, that was the point where I viewed the other side. It, it put a face to it in a way. Oh man. And it put a friendship to it in a way that hadn't happened to me but like that before. Oh, that's a challenge to all of us. How many friends do you have that don't believe like you believe? You have to. And for me, it's like, That's I don't the, know that any, I don't have a single good friend mm -hmm. that has counter positions from mine politically or even theologically. 
I have some friends that are a little more left. I don't know. I think the biggest leftist friend I have is a very active atheist here in town. He's active nationally, but he's conservative financially in terms of the economy, but he's very liberal socially. And so, but that's about it. I just don't, I've had some interactions and done some things, even with some transgender activists with three hour dinner, stuff like, but that's rare. And I think that's our problem. Yeah. It's one of our biggest problems in America is we just do not mix. And it, it grows you as a person, but it oh, also yeah. is how you do the Great Commission for, for a Christian to go, you know, if, if our calling is to share our faith, you can't share your faith with people who already agree with you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, what is that all about? Right. Hey, all I ever do is hang out with Dallas Cowboy fans. <laughs> okay. Well, that's cool for your Dallas Cowboy life, but you're not spending any time with anybody else. And right. you just put the rest of the NFL, forget it. They're all a bunch of idiots. Redskins, I don't care, well, whatever we call them now. What, the, all fo- that's, the football team. Yeah, the football team. It's just, it's just crazy. But how does your generation view that problem? Are people talking about, like, we don't talk. We don't know how to agree to disagree. We just stay in our tribes. And like I said, we throw things across the digital space at each other. We throw bumper stickers at each other. There's almost no constructive conversation going on. And Twitter and Facebook and all that does not help. Yeah, in my circles, I still see lots of throwing grenades on social media, <laughs> even in even in my generation. Yeah, yeah. There, there, it seems like, you know, you like to talk with your ears closed. And so then all you, all you do is talk. And so I, I, I still see that problem of people aren't having conversations in good faith. They're having conversations for the sake of proving to the other person that they're wrong. And it's not about like mutually growing. And I, I think that is still a problem that I see with my generation, especially on social media. I don't see a lot of, you know, conversations that end with, well, I, I respect you and thanks for talking to me. It's always like, it always ends in anger or frustration. Most yeah. Of the time. So it's, it's because I think that's gen like, how does your generation view my generation that way? Isn't that kind of how you see us? Yeah. We're just hardcore, no conversation, no give, no compromise. Because I would expect your generation would not be as bad, but you're saying you're kind of in the same boat with us. Yeah. It's it's that idea that, you know, you you might hate what your parents do and then you become them. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, there is a level. You just depressed every single person that will ever listen to this podcast. But it, it's part of that. It's very true. There is there's a level of truth to it. And it, it takes a lot of intentionality. Yeah. And it has to start with, for me, you have to get frustrated with the lack of conversation before you're willing to change in yourself. And so for me, that's that happened to me a couple of years ago where I just got so frustrated arguing. And I was like, well, why am I doing this? What's the purpose? We're both just clashing heads and no one's like no one's changing. So like, yeah. why do we converse? And then when I got frustrated with that enough, I was like, well, maybe I'm part of the problem. And I was. I, I really, really was. And so it wasn't about, well, this other person just won't won't talk to me without getting angry. It was like, well, I'm stoking them to anger by being aggressive yeah. and doing all these things. And so it took a lot of conscious effort in in me to I'm, – I'm, I'm far from a finished Did product. you struggle to listen? I did. Because I'm a terrible listener. Yeah. And being on the radio five days a week doesn't help. Yeah. Thinking back to like 2016, I was – I was so obnoxious. Like I, I really, really was. I was so obnoxious. And, you know, people would challenge me. Even people, like I had left for like charter by that point and come back to homeschool and doing some community college classes. But people at Raleigh Charter would still kind of talk to me and I was just aggressive. Um, people would um, just be, and I, I was kind of stoking it because I was 
you know, Trump was such a divisive figure and yeah. I was brash about my support for him. And that just stoked people. Yeah. And, you know, even if you do support him, you have understanding that, you know, he is such a hated man with your unconditional support is going to make people angry. It's going to yeah. piss people off. Right. Yep. And I was part of that. Yeah. Just guilty by association. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah. And then a lot of us, a lot of people that are Trump supporters then double down on that. And you, you know, you don't have to be like him in order to like him. And you can support things that he does without supporting who he is or how he does it. Uh, Joel Rosenberg was on the show the other day, New York Times bestselling author, lives in Jerusalem now, uh, an American. He's got dual citizenship. And he said, you know, Trump's presidency is kind of like uh, watching sausage being made. You don't like the process. It's ugly. You'd rather not see it. But for those of us, especially political conservatives, uh, you like the outcome. So I'll, I'll, I have a buddy that owns a great barbecue place here in the in the area. It's called Prime Barbecue. And one time they, I was in the back and they were showing me they make their own sausage. And I, it, oh, I was like, oh, I don't know that I'm ever going to eat sausage again. But 30 minutes later, I'm sitting out front with a big plate of meat and there's some sausage there. And I chowed down, man, because it tasted great, but it was nasty to watch it come together. But I like the finished product. And that's kind of like Trump. And some people just say, if he's, if it's, no, I'm never going near sausage. He's a piece of crap. I, I get that. But back to Liberty. Yeah. So just kind of pull the veil back on that. And let's start talking about Jerry Falwell Jr. Because obviously he's big in the news right now, mm -hmm. but he's been big in the news. Yeah. He made the cover of People Magazine last week. Holy cow. Yeah. Congratulations. Uh, and so he was a big Trump supporter, totally out there politically, hiding nothing. In the, he's in the epicenter now. He's part of the religious right. He's on the evangelical council. He can see Trump. Trump comes to the school. And then follow is just out there, very aggressive. So what's that been like to go to Liberty University under the reign of Jerry Falwell Jr.? Yeah, like I mentioned my first semester, kind of like when I was choosing to go there, I didn't really know much about him. But you would just kind of start, things would, you would just start to see things. And so for me, it was personal because there was a big controversy with the newspaper, the Liberty Champion. That started with a World Magazine article kind of exposing a culture of censorship at the newspaper that I was directly involved in. Um, Who was censoring? So the, 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 the premise of the World article was that the people in Jerry Falwell's office, his administration, would have cr all creative control over the content of the champion. And so some of the examples would be a guy who wrote a sports column about Donald Trump's quote unquote locker room talk after the Access Hollywood tapes. And a notice came down from Jerry Falwell's office saying, if you're going to run this, you have to say at the bottom who you support for president. Otherwise, it's biased and things like that. Or articles being completely pulled or being told we're not going to wow. publish that. Wow. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, being involved in the champion for a couple of years, there was every every I can confirm every article went to Jerry Falwell's office. He saw every single page of the magazine before it was approved, not him, but his staff yeah, before yeah. it was approved. And so, you know, the publisher, Liberty, had full creative control. And so that's kind of when my personal frustration started. But then you would just see him and you always had the sense that he was more of a political operative than – and he was a good school president in terms of raising money. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. But his heart – Flush with cash. His heart never seemed to be with – doing the work of the Lord. And, it, you know, it, it's a quick, just a really easy example would be like, look at his Twitter. He might retweet Donald Trump a hundred times. I'd never seen him retweet or post scripture, anything about the Bible, the way he attacked people like David Platt, telling yeah. him to grow a pair, telling Russell Moore, the ethics leader of the Southern Baptist Convention, that he's 
not allowed to give an opinion because he's never run a business. Just these like aggressive and nasty things. And then you look back into his history and he's making comments about everyone should have a gun so that we could, quote, shoot those Muslims before they get in here. Yeah. Things like that. And then it just started to get worse and worse and worse as I've been there and kind of just came to a head since I graduated. So was it was was ne- was there negative talk about Jerry Falwell Jr. on campus? There was some, but a lot of people just laughed him off as like, oh, that's just Jerry being Jerry. It's kind of just like, oh, yeah, just your goofy cousin, your goofy yeah. uncle. It's like, oh, well, like he's doing like look at the way he's enabling all these great service projects. Look at the money he's funneling toward doing work in Haiti. Yeah. Look at like he's got David Nasser here leading the spiritual development. He's, you know. Do you think we do you think that people on the right handle Donald Trump the exact same way? I think so. We go look at look at the things he's accomplished because this is what I have to do. Look at the things he's accomplished. It's back to the sausage thing. It's a really ugly process, but I like the the product. So I look at the things that is that the Trump administration has accomplished and I like most of it. But when I watch Trump as an individual and I and I have some grace and some mercy for him because if he is a Christian and I don't know that he is. Uh he's a baby Christian and he's got a long way to go and like you said earlier, how easy is it to teach a 71, 72, 73, now 74-year-old dog new tricks? Good luck with that. Uh but but there's been we I think people that hate Trump or people that really don't like evangelical Christians uh will just say you, you can't th- you got to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. So there, there is a sense of that. And it's almost like it's almost like you're you're using the person, be the follower or Trump for your for your own benefit. And yeah. It's like, you know, it's, it's the question, like, do the ends justify the, the exactly. means? You know, yeah. this is a good end. You know, liberty is growing. The buildings are getting nicer. The school sports teams are getting better. We're doing service. We have a great spiritual community development. And Jerry is the means to that end. Yeah. But it does the means. Does, does that justify it? And that's that's the question. And then, you know, kind of coming into this fall, there was some controversy with Liberty staying open during COVID-19 um, that he, you know, Jerry was involved in. He, yeah. he sued the New York Times for a false article about that. And then later on, he, you know, with the face mask, with the Ralph Northam KKK blackface picture on it, that he he posted a picture that he had just bought a, ma- a face mask with that picture on it. And so that caused controversy. And then you get to a few weeks ago when there's the sex scandal with the pool boy and his wife and the conflicting stories there. And he first he resigns, then he doesn't resign. And then he resigns with a ten and a half million dollar yeah, payout deal. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it kind of seemed like to me, the sex scandal, it's bad. Is it worse than wearing a mask with a KKK and blackface? Maybe not, but that might just be the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, yeah. But you can cut, you can see a trajectory of this boiling over for a period of years. And the ultimate, you know, I have a f- good friend, Derek Rocky, who was student body president of Liberty last year, and I respect him and admire him and all the, and he has a personal relationship with the Falwells. And when, when the sex scandal broke, he took to t- Facebook and said, you know, obviously saddened and glad that we're moving forward, but you can't forget the family of like the Falwells who just need God and need to feel his forgiveness and his redemption and repentance. And so I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to say things about Jerry without saying first that he is in my prayers and his family. And I hope that they find, you know, the peace that God can give and his love and his forgiveness. No one's a lost cause, not Jerry, not anyone, certainly not not, Trump, not certainly not me. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I definitely want to, you know, I feel for him and his family. I do hope that they can find that. But, you know, that doesn't mean your actions do dictate your qualification to be a leader 
of the world's largest Christian university. And you yeah. know, for him, his actions certainly. Said, and would you say that, that your generation uh, applies that standard evenly? Is like, you think that's, a, that's the problem with Trump. I don't care so much. They can have a problem. If you're liberal, you're going to care about the results of his presidency because he's going to take a lot of positions and do a lot of things that you don't agree with or that piss you off. Uh, but, but just looking at the man, so we look at the man and then I discount everything. Just like I look at Jerry Falwell's behavior and then I kind of throw the whole thing under the bus. So how does your generation deal with that in terms of looking at Trump or based on somebody like Falwell? Yeah, I, I, I view Falwell a little bit differently specifically because I, I don't view him as a pastor, but I view him in a role of spiritual leadership. Yeah. And for anyone who's not a Christian in the Bible, there are qualifications yeah. to be a spiritual leader. The bar leader. goes up. Yeah, it goes up. Trim. And, you know, that was part of, in 2016, that was part of my reason for supporting Trump. Well, you know, the president is not a religious leader. Yeah. He's not pastor in chief. Right. He's just supposed to run the country. And that, so, so his personal fallings were no longer a qualification. But, you know, thinking about it more, it, it the standard for the president has just lowered so much. Yeah. Like the, you, you can be both candidates, whether credible or not, have a sexual assault allegation against them, whether credible or not. Like right, that, that's right. how far the bar is lowered. Yeah. You know, right. Old white men with sexual assault allegations. Really, yeah. Whatever. It's like, these yeah. are the, these are the two men that we're going to propose for yeah. a two party system. And then, yeah. And it's funny because the, the, the quote unquote woke, tolerant, inclusive party of the left picks an old white guy. Uh, once again, yeah. to run yeah. uh, for presidency after uh, picking the older white woman uh, previously, but at least she was a, a female. But in this case, I'm like, okay, you had such a diverse group of people running, so many, but you picked the old white guy who's been up there, uh, you know, since Moses. And go, <laughs> okay, I guess the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. Let, let's broaden out a little bit, yeah. just in terms of your generation. So. What do you think are some of the issues that are most important to your generation? You're how old are you? I'm 22. Okay, so we're talking about your low level uh, millennial, high end Gen Z, right around in there, I think. Yeah, I think you know social media is a bad barometer of this. So I'm going to combine what I see from people my age on social media with things that I have had individual conversations. Yeah, okay. And my curiosity, I've even had I've put out Instagram polls with my friends to see what they care about, and I've seen. A lot about from people from on the left, I see climate change and healthcare are the the main things. From people on the right, it's more it's still the economy and it's immigration are the those are kind of the the political ideas yeah. that's and those are you know, those have had the most weight for decades. That's sure. that's nothing new. Sure. And that's something that we've probably inherited from our from our parents is like those are the issues that matter. But to kind of go back to your last question, how my generation views these leaders, I think my generation really wants to see the bar get raised again. You know, whatever you say about, I'll take I'll take Ronald Reagan on one side and Barack Obama on the other. Those were two men who, or with their speeches, rose to the moment when they needed to. They were people who, you know, when they were representing America abroad, you felt like you know, with their oratory skills, with their the way they carried themselves, they raised the bar as to what a president should look like, what a president Kinda should be. Kind of dignified. Yeah, dignified. Because I could take issue with what Barack Obama said sure. when he was speaking around sure. the world. But just in terms of his presence, yeah. how he would carry himself. Yeah. Kind Even, of this dignity of mm -hmm. the office. Yeah, and that, the, the bar has lowered tremendously from there in the last, in the last eight years. Yeah. And so I, I do think that in a level, we want to see that bar get raised again. Because 
that does matter to us, uh, you know, not just because we like watching good speeches, but because, you know, you want the person who represents you to be someone who represents you well. And I think, I think for me, that's, that's something that matters a lot is just r raising the bar again, when, regardless of what you think on policy, because from the way I, and I think my generation has this problem too, is we've seen the cycle of things just swing back and forth and it feels like sure. it's just going to keep swinging. So like yeah. you might get eight years of a conservative Supreme Court and good legislation for the conservatives and then it's just going to swing back. You go from eight years of Clinton to eight years of Bush to eight years of Obama. Yeah. To pot, you know, it's just that pendulum is just going back and forth. So whatever you care about issues you know, the pendulum's going to swing in your direction. Yeah, you're going to have your day in the sun and then you're going to spend time in the shade as well. Right. And yeah. that that cycle feels almost inevitable to us. Well, it is. Yeah, right. And our form of government yeah. and a widely varied uh, populace and they change themselves. Mm -hmm. You may not be exactly where you're at politically today in 10 years. That That's going to change in one way or another. And so the natural pendulum back and forth is, is, is fine. I think the challenge with your generation talk about, we want to raise the bar. We want to see better people. My generation says, it goes, okay, I understand where you're coming from, but are you going to have better people that represent the office well and are, are well-behaved and caring and respectful? But if their policies are bad, yeah, I don't really give a crap yeah. how nice they are. But then your generation is like, yeah, but the, the, who they are matters. And I'm like, yeah, but. See, and then we're at an impasse there. And for me, looking at Christians saying, well, their character doesn't matter. <laughs> right. I'm like, wait. Yeah, wait, what? Yeah. That, that, that should matter a whole yeah. lot. As a Christian character actually should matter. Yeah. At, um, at my church and in my circles, I would just to add one more thing. I think it, it, it's encouraging to see just how seriously abortion is still taken. Yeah. And regardless of where I explore my political beliefs, like, like your son, being pro-life is vital to me. It's so vital. Because, but would you vote for an Andrew Yang? I've debated that a lot. I I I have never I have not voted for a pro-choice person yet. But you wouldn't say that's off the table. I wouldn't say it's off the table completely. Yeah, yeah. And I've been reading a lot about like just how much power the president actually has over abortion. I read an article by David French the other week yeah, about uh -huh. on that topic. Like five, it was five reasons why the president. It was five reasons why you can be a Christian. And if you vote for a Democrat, you don't have blood on your hands for abortion because the president doesn't actually have that much power over it. And so that's something that I'm still coming to grips with. Yeah. I'll have to read but that article. In my personal. And David ethic, French is, how would you, I would describe him as conservative, but kind of moderate. He's a never Trump conservative. Yeah. 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 Um, kind of like in the Mitt Romney vein yeah. of, yeah, of the political spectrum. But and I, older conservative heads are exploding all over the place <laughs> when you bring up Mitt Romney. <laughs> sure. But it's in, it is encouraging to see that issue still be so important. Yeah. And on a grassroots level, you know, what what you do with Love Life and what I've seen, you know, just trying to love on these people and understanding that they are in really, really tough situations. Yeah. But oh, yeah. the importance of that issue, I'm encouraged to see how vital that still is to yeah. my generation. That's good. What about, uh, what would your advice be to my generation? In relation to us? Politics and how we interact and how we look at you guys. And and when I say my generation, I'm talking about specifically kind of uh, older church people, conservative people as we engage. Because I've heard from a lot of folks that heard the other podcasts with my son, because so many conservative uh, church families and parents are dealing with this, where their kids are not towing the same line as they are politically. And man, families are dividing over it. I mean, I've 
the division in the church over Donald Trump was amazing. Then we see it again with face masks and COVID-19 and open, don't open, wear a mask, don't wear a mask, screw you, I have rights here in America and I'm, it doesn't work anyway, blah, 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 blah. But on this political level with parents and kids, I, I think this is a big problem and, and you don't hear many conversations like we're trying to have today. Yeah, I, I just, just last weekend, I had a conversation with my grandma about athletes kneeling for the anthem and it just kind of, that conversation ended with just recognizing, in our case, a two generational gap that's going to, you know, it's on that generation. She's not going to change her ways. And yeah. I'm probably not going to change mine. But in relation to, you know, with parents and kids, I think it's important to understand that your politics should not be what's impacting the other parts of your life. The other parts of your life should be what's impacting politics, be it your religion, your your ethic of morality, your core belief should yeah. impact your politics, not vice versa. Yeah. And so you see lots of Christians who believe that they are doing the Great Commission by engaging in the culture war and making making America a moral Judeo-Christian society. And in a level, that's great because we are we live in a democracy where the people sure. get to say. Yeah. And so Christians are- We have a right to interact with course. the government and its policies and to try to move it in a certain direction. Everybody's got that right. Right. And that's not, but the I think that it's important to make a distinction between that and believing that that is the Great Commission in and of itself. And the Great Commission is still preaching the gospel. It's not ending abortion. And in fact, I would argue that the best way to help someone who's struggling with an abortion choice is to share the gospel. You know, they're not, they may not listen to me say why abortion is wrong, but if they accept Christ in their life and they start reading the scripture and yeah. they're, they're reading in Psalms, they'll see their thinking them. changes. Then the Holy, when the Holy Spirit gets involved in their right. sanctification process, that's a lot better than what I'm preaching to them. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, which is a great point. And I think that's uh, our, my generation has given the, and I say this on the air, and, and one of the reasons the radio is different than the, this podcast, the SOB podcast is, is, is designed for a different audience and it's maturing and it's, it's changing as it goes. And I want to start doing more of these conversations, especially across our generations. Uh, but on the radio, I'm always reminding people, listen, I, I think oftentimes in the church in the conservative church in America, we care more about America than we do Americans. And we're like, we need to save America. And I'm like, yeah, do you know your neighbor? Do you ever talk to your neighbor about Jesus Christ? Talk about the gospel, which is, if you're not a Christian, that's how does one become reconciled to God because we've all violated God's laws and we're all kind of rule breakers that way and you have to be reconciled. And the only way you can be reconciled with God is through what Jesus did for you, took the punishment that rightfully you deserve, and then offers you a get out of jail free card if you put all your faith in him. You got to understand that. And then when you do, that's when we say you've become a Christian, a born again Christian, uh, you're in the family of faith. We start dropping all that evangelical language on you. But that's what we're talking about when we bring up the Great Commission is just sharing that information with other people. But oftentimes I think we act, and I see this all the time, I'm, I'm way more bent out of shape with the political condition of the country than I am with the spiritual condition of neighbors or BLM protesters or an Antifa guy or Andrew Yang or any liberal. We tend to think of the country first, which matters because it's made of people. And from a Christian perspective, made of people made in the image of God. And every single one of the 330 million American citizens has inestimable worth and is worthy of dignity and respect. But for a lot of people, that's news, especially coming from a conservative Christian. We go, well, you can say that, but you certainly don't act like it. And I think that we've given that impression and we need to own a lot of that crappy reputation, I think. And when, when I think about everything that my parents did right 
kind of just bringing that, you know, and kind of what I was saying, the worldview dictates politics. And so a parent can feel confident that if they are instilling a worldview that is consistent with God's word, yeah. that promotes a biblical ethic, if they can instill that in their children and then let them search, then as long as that foundation is there, that child is going to be seeking to honor God. And you might disagree with how they get there, yeah. but their intention is the same. And you might say that they're doing it less well than you, and they may be, they may not be, they might be though, but their intention is the same. And it's to honor God through their through their voting, through their activism, through their life. And so I think, you know, instilling in your children conservative Republican values is different from a worldview. And I think a worldview is going to impact a child more holistically. Yeah. And I think that's going to help them when they start. Well, you know, they're going to leave your house at some point. Yeah. They're going to start reading. Hopefully. You know, they might, you might, you might never have a subscription to the New York Times. Once they leave their house, they can subscribe to it on their own <laughs> and they can start reading all these things that you've never yeah. told them about. And so how are you going to help them filter that information when they leave you is more important than, you know, just telling them, well, this is what we believe because this is yeah. what we always have. Believed. So we need to give you some room to run. I think so. And not be so condemning and so impatient. I think so. And it's a process. You know, I'm not expecting to be a holistic yeah. thinker for another five or six years. <laughs> much, much, much longer than that, too. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It takes a while. Yeah. Uh, I'm not, and I'm, I wouldn't say I've crossed that finish line either. What about speaking to people that would hear this that that would not call themselves Christians or are not, or maybe they would say, I believe in God and stuff, but they're not that serious about it. Uh, what would you tell them, speaking to them, about us? Us being people that are serious about our faith, we believe the teachings of the Bible, uh, because I think we make assumptions about them, they make assumptions about us. But what would be your kind of olive branch to people out, quote unquote, outside of the faith? Yeah, I think I think it would be important to understand for them that the, I think a lot of their preconceptions are going to be that we're hateful, that we're bigoted, that we're narrow minded, and that we don't want to listen. And my response would be, the entire premise of Christianity is that we are all, everyone is made in God's image. And that immediately gives you value to me as a person, yeah. no matter where you are. I have family members who are homosexual. I have family members who are in relationships outside of marriage. And those might be things that I disagree with, but I love them because of who they are. They're not just my family, but they're made in yeah. God's image. And that's not, a, you're not looking at them as a charity case or I love no. them because God tells me to they, love I just them. Want to be, you actually do. Yeah, I just want to be my family. I want to hang out with them. Yeah. I just want them to be in my life. No matter, I'm not going to preach to them all the time. I'm not going to, you know, try to change. I just want to be around them because they're my family. And understand that this is, Christianity is a place where it's going to challenge you. You know, God's rules are God's rules, sure. but it is a place of acceptance. And we want you to live not just your best life here, but to have life for eternity. And we want what's best for you and what God says is best for you. And so I think there's just such a perception that, you know, they're just going to judge me and then I'm not going to be welcome. And Christianity is challenging. It challenges me all the time. Yeah, sure. It challenges me in my sin, which I recognize is there all the time. And, you know, my pastor might preach a really convicting sermon and I don't really feel like I want to be a Christian right now yeah, because- yeah. All of a sudden, he's trying to take away my fun. Christianity should never be comfortable for mm -hmm. an unbeliever. Anyone. But it shouldn't be really comfortable for a believer either, because I've got plenty of junk in my closet, just like the person that rejects Christianity or is not interested in. Listen, we're all, that's why the Bible says, 
we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Everybody's screwed up. That's just a little secret out there. That's not such a secret that if I'm wagging, pointing my one finger at you, I've got three fingers pointing back at me. And so Christians actually should be very humble. Most of the time, I think we're not. And self-righteousness is addictive. Right. And, and, and then if I'm wagging my finger at other people and go, oh, homosexuals, liberals, blah, 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 blah. At the time when I'm doing it, I'm, I'm propping myself up, making myself feel better. And I'm just doing that by comparing myself to other people, as opposed to par- comparing myself to what God says in his word, which would then make me uncomfortable. It's yeah. like, okay, let's all get in the uncomfortable boat because the bar is perfection, moral perfection, and none of us can get there. So that should humble all of us. I think, yeah, so like speaking to unbelievers, you know, Christianity is not going to be accepting of everything you do, but I'm a Christian and Christianity is not accepting to everything I do either, <laughs> yeah. but it is accepting of you. Yeah. And to Christians, I would say when you witness and when you have these conversations with unbelievers, starting with the symptom of sin is a backwards way to do it. That's like putting a bandaid on an artery cut. Right. It's not, yeah. it's not, you're, you're just, you're trying to cure the symptom of the problem, you know? the Holy Spirit is going to be much better at making someone a more moral and sanctified person than I am. And so if we as Christians share the gospel recklessly, which is you're a sinner, God loves you and he wants to be your savior and he came to die for you. If we do that, then, and they accept that, then they're going to start reading yeah, and they're going to start caring. Yeah. If it's real and the Holy Spirit's going to change their lifestyle. So the lifestyle change has to come after. I don't think. I don't think it comes before the presentation. Of- well, the I've got a friend, uh, Eric Garner, who who lived out his homosexual lifestyle vigorously for a while, and then he became a born again Christian. And then it didn't take that long, because uh, somebody would ask him, "Can you be a really committed, biblical, born again Christian and a practicing homosexual?" His answer to that is not for long. Now, you fast forward a few years after his salvation, his experience in in becoming a man of faith, and he's married now to a woman as a son. And and he said, I brought him into my uh, large Sunday school class I used to teach for adults. I didn't tell anybody what his deal was. But you could could start guessing within, this will sound bad to some people, 30 to 60 seconds, he's uh, somewhat effeminate and a hairdresser and very well manicured hair and he comes in and he kind of that stereotypical, you know, talks a little bit more effeminately. And so within 30 seconds, you could just tell the room gets a little uncomfortable. People are like, is this, is this guy gay? Is this guy homosexual? And then at the end of that, he shared his whole story, which was amazing. And then at the end I said, okay, Eric, uh, what's, what's the number one thing you would want to say to all of us conservative Bible thumping Christians here at this mostly white church? What's the number one thing you would say to us with respect to homosexuality? And he bowed up and he stuck his finger out at us and he says, it's not your job to clean the fish, which goes back to what Jesus was talking about to his disciples. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Meaning you're going to go out there and try to bring men like fish into the boat, the boat being the family of God. Uh, but but it's the Holy Spirit's job to then turn around and clean the fish. We try to clean the fish first. Yeah. Stop being homosexual. It can't be a liberal, blah, 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 blah. And then God will accept you, which is not how it works at all. But I think that's, I think we are saying the same thing. I think so. Like like John Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. He got saved on a slave ship. 
Yeah, he was a slave trader. He was the captain of a slave trader in a a massive storm. And he says, God, if you save me from the storm, I'll commit my life to you. He literally gets saved while captaining a ship that is selling human beings. Yeah, and dumping black bodies off the side on the That is the radical power of the gospel. You know, you don't have to be cleaning up your life to be saved. You can be doing the worst types of depravity and then in a- God meets you right where you're at. Exactly. He loves you immeasurably right where you're at. You don't have to- at first, the deal isn't, okay, I'm going to give you a list of 22 things that you need to clean up in your life because your life is a freaking train wreck. And you got this wrong and you got this wrong. Pornography, uh, you know, kind of marital issues or non-marital issues. You're having sex with everybody that moves. You listen to Call Her Daddy five times a day, blah, 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 blah. You get all that stuff dealt with and then I'll talk to you. No, you're fully known and fully loved. This is a radical thing about the gospel. Even till this day, I got, I got born again. I became an actual Christian back in 1994. And I still have plenty of stain on my ledger, plenty of things that I do wrong, some wickedness stuff here and there. And, and I'm fully known by God. None of that stuff's hidden. You don't know about it. My wife might not know about it. Radio listeners, but God knows all of it. Action in action. Words, words I should have spoken that I didn't speak. Thoughts, thoughts I should have had, thoughts I shouldn't have had. All that crap's there. So you're fully known, yet fully loved? What? So you guys think about this. If all your friends knew every bad thing about you, would you expect them to remain your friends? Do they love you that much? Or would you be embarrassed? Would you be afraid? Are you afraid to be fully known? Because then it would be impossible to be fully loved, right? Well, that is the gospel, fully known and fully loved. And you don't get cleaned up first. Becoming more like Jesus is a part of the process once you actually become a Christian. But I, I, we don't really hear it that way very often. Yeah, it's a it's a reorienting approach. But I think I think that's something that Christians and especially Christians who are so engaged in the culture war need yeah. to hear. I oh, think it's really really vital. Very vital. Any questions for me? I've been asking you questions all the time. Been peppering you with questions. Then I want to talk about your podcast. Then we'll finish up. But yeah, um, questions or comments or. Criticism, hey, knock yourself out. Yeah. I have like one feeling. You can't hurt it. You'll never find it. So don't worry about it. Listening to your podcast with Hayden, I guess, you know, and I, I know a little bit of your story. You came and spoke at the men's retreat with my dad and I've read read your book and gotten to know you and your story. And so uh, kind of reading, you know, just about the way that you approach the world. How have you, you, you were doing those big gatherings in the PNC arena and we've had a couple of conversations, but you know, how has what you've seen with the divisiveness of the political climate gauged the way that you approach people? Because uh, there's been a there's been an idea, and I, I think I've I've even had this thought that you're at times you were stirring up the division. Oh yeah. Instead of ending it, and yep. in some ways division is good, but I, I have had that thought about you, and so I wonder how you're approaching that as things are only getting more and more divisive. Yeah, I'll, I'll go back to when I said self-righteousness. So you've mentioned that you've used the phrase culture war a couple of times. So for those of us in the church and hear the culture war, that's us engaging the American populace and the American political landscape on all the big hot button social issues. So whether we're talking about abortion, homosexuality, gay marriage, transgenderism, that kind of stuff, right? So when we go engage in that and we try to deal with what's going on in schools and all that kind of stuff, abortion clinics, that's the culture war. So when I got involved and became an activist back in 2004, here's where the self-righteousness part comes in. So if you're a Christian and you know the Bible, you understand uh, morality and immorality, the dark, the light, what's good, what's bad. And so when you spend a bunch of time pointing out all the darkness and you're like, well, I'm not like that. 
And this is a look at all this crap. And there's all this crap out here. And But I'm not like that. So I feel pretty good about myself because I'm judging myself against that garbage over there. So that's self-righteousness, okay? And then that hurts. You used the word sanctification earlier. Sanctification is just the process of becoming more like Jesus, okay? That you, once you become a Christian, then you're sp supposed to be a better image bearer over the course of your life. You're maturing, you're learning, you're growing, you're uh, sacrificing your flesh, your sinfulness, your brokenness, and becoming more like Jesus. So it actually hurts the sanctification process because I feel pretty good about where I'm at because I just keep focusing on all the crap from a biblical perspective. And then evangelism also suffers. You said the Great Commission. We don't really share much because then my preoccupation is with the state of the nation, not the state of the citizens individually on a spiritual level. So that was all that problem. And when I would stoke up the fire, go after things, put a couple pelts on the wall, then my team would cheer louder, which would make me feel like a better Christian. And I'm stuck in this cycle, right? So then we did some big, some big uh, evangelism things. That was Greg Laurie, who's like a Billy Graham. And if you're under the age of 35, you probably don't even know who either one of those people are. But big time Christians that do these big events and share the gospel, Great Commission, what we're talking about with Chad. So in that process, uh, and I was a big time activist at the time, that took about a year and a half to pull that whole thing together. We were three nights at the big local uh, arenas, like 42,000 people came out, big time Christian bands and all that stuff. So in that process, I'd boil it down to this conversation that I have with God. And, and God would say, hey, Steve, if you're walking down the street and a blind man bumps into you, are you going to be mad at him? And in my piety, my self-righteousness, I'm like, well, of course not, Lord. And he goes, yeah, why, why is that, Steve? Why, why won't you be mad? Well, be, you know, because he's blind. And I'm like, oh, crap. I'm getting really mad at people because they don't subscribe to a biblical perspective. And they're not Christians. So why would they? You know, they don't even really have the ability to or the interest in it. So I'm condemning all those people for not taking a biblical position when, why would, hey, what's, hey, what's with the Seattle Seahawks fans that don't dig on Dallas Cowboys, bunch of scumbags? Well, they're not Cowboys fans, you idiot. So that's, that started to confront me. And then it was a, a Tim Keller was a really, really well-known pastor, very strategic, very gentle, Redeemer Presbyterian, New York City. This is the, the only pastor I've ever known of, Chad, that after his sermons, he'd say, stick around afterwards. And if you have any questions about what I said, I'll open up the floor. So skeptics would start flocking. And he's in freaking New York City, right? So you got a lot of skeptics there. I listened to this one sermon of his several times where he talked about, and you've probably heard me say this, if you're all truth and no grace, you're a bully. So I'm, I'm going to pound the table on all these biblical truths, but I don't have any grace for people. I don't have any patience. I don't show them any mercy. I'm just mad at them because they don't believe what the Bible says. So I'm all truth, but no grace. I'm just a bully. And that's what we've been. The culture war, Republican Christians, which you guys piss me off. So there's that. Then he goes to the opposite extreme and says, but if you're all grace and no truth, you're a coward. And those are people that are afraid to defend a biblical position. They'll... One of the books that your homosexual friend at Liberty gave you might have been Matthew Vine's The Gay Gospel and all this kind of stuff. So they twist things. They take it out of context. They don't want to offend anybody. So I'm not going to talk about abortion. I'm not going to talk about sexual ethics. So I'm all grace, but no truth. Now you're a coward. You're just afraid. But Jesus in the Bible, the book of John in the New Testament, chapter 1, verse 14, full of both grace and truth. 
I'm like, well, crap. I thought those were like mutually exclusive, right? How you can't, you can't do both. Yes, you can. And that was just deeply convicting to me. And then I've spent time with transgender activists and people like that. And I just started to, God just started to work on my heart. And I started to see people for the valuable individuals that they are, not judging them based on their political positions or cultural positions, just valuing them and caring about them. And then if I hold the door open for people, it's because I actually want to. And I started to love people well. And I still have my positions. I haven't given up an inch on the truth side of it, but I've improved a lot on the grace side of it. And I look at Jesus as the example. And I ask, I ask people in the church all the time, I'll go, hey, hey, who did Jesus hammer, by the way, back in the day? Who did he hammer? And they're looking around and go, hmm, Pharisees? Yep. Okay, who else? Uh, Sadducees? Right. Anybody else? Then he was just really hard on. Hmm, nope. Well, who are those guys? A big mouth, self-righteous religious leaders of the day. Now, with other people, he didn't compromise on the truth. The rich young ruler comes to him and he's like, hey, how do I, uh, how do I in inherit eternal life? Jesus is like, well, you know, keep the commands. The guy's like, well, yeah, yeah, I've done that. He's looking for a list so he can check it off and go to heaven. And Jesus knew his heart. And that's when he said to him, okay, here's the deal. Go sell all your stuff, give it to the poor and come and follow me. Because Jesus knew who his real God was. And it says the guy went away sad. The next line isn't, and Jesus went after him and berated him and said, hold on a second. He just let him go. Truth and grace. And he didn't even beat him up. And I'm like, well, that's how we're supposed to be, right? So I'll tell you the truth, but I'll do it with grace and mercy. And I have a different voice in a conversation with somebody outside the faith than I do. I'm really hard on people inside the church. I try not to be that much of a jerk to people outside of the church, which is the whole point of this podcast is I want you, a listener, that might not be in the church to maybe go, well, you expect me to be an SOB, white, Southern Baptist, conservative, voted for Trump in 2016. I'll vote for him again in 2020. And so you're expecting me to be an SOB. And I just hope I'm not quite the SOB you expect me to be. But that takes time and it takes conversation. And that there, that yeah. I just gave you a yeah. really stupid, long-winded answer. No, it's good. For, for Christians my age, do you think that there are any specific areas where we're compromising the truth in terms of because we want to lean so much toward grace? Well, on an individual basis, listen, your generation's more pro-life than the generation above you, which is an interesting thing uh, and a whole nother topic for another day. So I, part of me wants to give you an answer to that question. Part of me, that would be self-defeating because I think part of what, I have to do and what my generation has to do in the church is to be more patient. And uh, I want to foster conversation. I don't want to tell you what you should think. I can, and I can back it up, but I need to leave some room there to your point to let you answer to God. You don't answer to me. And I have to trust the Holy Spirit. If you're actually a Christian, and I know you are, but then just trust that process, come alongside and say, let's have conversations. Your people inside the church, uh, young people flirting with notions of socialism. Well, that's because you guys think of it more philosophically and emotionally. My generation thinks of it almost purely historically. Because what do we always say to you? Well, show me one place on the planet where that's ever worked. And you're like, well, and I've had this conversation with my son, with Hayden and his, one of his best friends. And he's like, well, the right people haven't done it yet. And I want to, well, you're ignorant. Your, your age is showing. You're so stupid and ignorant. But that's what I want to say, but I got to choke that back and say, well, I appreciate what you're saying, 
But are you saying that history doesn't matter? You just throw that out? No, you can't. So I think that the flirtation with socialism is dangerous. Uh, I think the flirtation with supporting pro-choice candidates can lead to trouble. Uh, but I'm not, the world's not on fire on that. But I think those are some, I'm, those are yellow flag things for me. Uh, compromising on sexual ethics. Hey, I can uh, live with my girlfriend. We're in a committed relationship. We have sex six times a week. We're not married, but we're committed. We're going to get married. So those kind of little uh, compromises here and there, yeah. uh, that's dangerous. But that's also part of your maturing process. Yeah. It's I, uh, not hard. It's not easy to be totally opposed to the world. And to live that out with some grace and some mercy and some compassion and not be a complete, excuse my French, a-hole. That's hard. And so the, I, I hope that was helpful. No, it was. Because I asked that to say, you know, the I, I've said, you know, giving us room to think for ourselves. Yeah. But the, the flip side of that is the mandate to be accountable mm. to people wiser and older yeah. than you. And yep. the mandate of parents to specifically train up their child in the way they should go, which is what the Bible says. Yeah. And so there's kind of, there's kind of two sides to that coin yeah. that can be hard to balance. That's a great point. Let the them, accountability point. Yeah. And which we have to do. That has to be motivated. Number one, by love for God. And number two, by my love for you. And there, there's a black gal that's been on the show a couple of times, Bevelyn Beatty, who's way out there, really aggressive Christian. She went to Chaz and Chop in New York City. She sp spread the black paint all over the yellow Black Lives Matter in New York City and Manhattan on Fifth Avenue. And she did her first video that went viral earlier this year. She goes, all right, I'm going to talk to white liberals and then I'm going to talk to white conservatives. Okay, white conservatives, uh, you need to have the guts to tell me the truth. When you think I'm wrong or you know I'm wrong and, and my position is, is mostly secured by the color of my skin, quit being so afraid to tell me the truth. Just tell me the truth. Don't hide it from me because you're afraid that you might offend me because I have black skin. And that's really important. That's accountability. But you tread softly, but you still have to speak the truth. And that, I think that's a great point. That you yeah. My last question, and this kind of, we're, we live in a very racial moment. Yep. And I want to, this might not be, a, this is a very specifically tailored question. So sure. it might not be for everyone in, who's listening to this, but for Christians who are wrestling with the idea of race, there, when I look at churches, it seems like church is actually one of the more segregated places sure. in our society. We, there, there are black churches, there are white churches, and there isn't much crossover. Have you noticed that? And what do you think would be, do you think that diversity in the church is important? And like, how could, you know, how does that happen? Because that's important to me, I think. Yeah, diversity in the church is important, but it's not most important. And... I think a, a church has a mandate. When we say church, we're talking about a local church. Should reflect the community that it's in. And you also, this is where you can't throw the baby out of the bathwater. Bath uh, the black culture operates a church differently than the white culture. That's not necessarily wrong. So in America, we want people to assimilate. So you're American, yet you celebrate Cinco de Mayo and you're bilingual and you hang a Mexican flag out your window and that kind of stuff. So, okay, you're an American, but you still maintain your individuality. And there's nothing wrong with that. But you can't throw the American thing out for your individuality. So you're an American now. So assimilate, but you can maintain your individuality. So I, that's where in the heat of the moment, we can sit there and go, 
oh, an all white church is wrong. But you better have the consistency and the intellectual honesty to then say, well, then the opposite is true. An all black church is wrong. So you black churches, you guys have an issue, just like you white churches have an issue because you don't want to worship together. So if you if you self-segregate, well, I don't want to, okay, God's going to deal with your heart, but you need to be willing to look in a mirror too and go, am I just, I'm not comfortable going to black church. Have you ever gone to a black church? Because I have. And it's been an incredible blessing from a unity perspective. I'm like, hey, you guys do it a little different. You definitely go longer. In the white church, we do three one-hour services. In the black church, you do one three-hour service. And so, holy cow. But then once you come together, you're like, this is way better. But does that mean it has to be integrated all the time? Well, then I think you're worshiping diversity, and that's a problem. But you can't ignore it. So I tend. this is what we tend to do in our culture. It's either all this or all that. Because we don't have, there's no nuance. But again, if somebody says, hey, the, the church is the most segregated place in the country on Sundays. Okay, but does that necessarily mean it's wrong? If your church is in, here in our context, Raleigh, North Carolina, North Raleigh, very white, upper middle class. Is, if it's mostly white, upper middle class people, is that a problem? My answer to that is not necessarily, but it could be. If a black family moves in and they come to your church, is that going to wig you out? Are they going to be wigged out? Are they going to be willing to come in? Are you going to be willing to receive them? Now we're all responsible for how we're dealing with it. And then we have to answer number one to God and we have to love each other. Jesus said, they'll know your mind, meaning they'll figure out you guys are Christians by the way you love one another. So on the radio show, for example, at least once, maybe twice this year, I've, I'll come on the air and this makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And I'll say black callers only. If you're white, you're not getting through. And then I have to tell my producer, who happens to be black, over in another city, I said, okay, if they call in and you're unsure, you can see where I'm going. If, if they don't, quote unquote, sound black, and you're un not sure, then you're going to have to, you got to ask them. And I'll tell this, I'll say this on the air. So if you call in and you're an African-American, but now this is going to sound terrible, you don't, quote unquote, sound African-American, and my producer is not sure if you are, I told them to ask. And you need to extend them some grace and just answer. Don't get into a fight. Just, yeah, I am. Okay, cool. Because if you get on the air and you're white and I figure that out, you're gone. I'll hang up on you. <laughs> so, because all I want to hear is from my black brothers and sisters and the more mature Christian African-Americans that call in, especially the older ones, are very level-headed. They're calm. They acknowledge all the crap. They acknowledge our racist past. They acknowledge our racist uh, current situation. They'll talk about systemic racism. They'll bring, but there's a calm there and we can have a good conversation because that's the bond of Christ. That's the Holy Spirit where if you're forgiven by God, you need to be willing to forgive others. And that's a big deal. So we don't want to forgive the past. I don't want to forgive anybody. I'm going to hold you just as responsible as your potentially slave owning uh, uh, great, great grandfather. But there's no forgiveness there. The gospel really does. The church is the only one that has the answer for this, which is the gospel because the gospel unifies as it is we must decrease and he must increase. We become more like Christ. Christ is loving of everyone. I don't judge you based on the color of your skin. And I love you because you're made in his image. Uh, so that's a really long answer, but that's the danger is we tend to go, it's either this or that. It's black or white. It's right or left. No, it's more complicated than that.
but you're only going to deal with it if you have a conversation. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. Anything else? No, those are, those are my questions. All right, so sports podcast. Tell us about that, and then we'll be done. Yeah, so a buddy from Liberty and I have a podcast. It's called Crunching Tackles. We do it every week, and we, uh, we're we handling sports as they relate to social issues. Huh. Kind of all across the spectrum. <laughs> you got of, your plate full right now. Yeah, yeah, we're staying busy. It, it's, it's things as specific as how can the soccer community accept countries that are engaging in civil rights abuses like like the the 2023 world cup is in qatar where they're using slave labor (laughs) to build so we're handling things like that things like why aren't there more black coaches in the nfl what are we doing with the anthem protest so kind of social justice meets the sports world yeah all across sports all across different topics gender race money issues all sorts of things it's it's been really really fun we're going on uh, about 30 episodes now what's it called crunching tackles crunching tackles yep all on all of the regular all the regular podcast place do you know what percentage of all downloaded podcasts come through apple uh for us for all podcasts i don't know 74 percent. yeah i'm sure it's a lot 74% 74% Apple. Yeah. And so they go, okay, that should, that should disturb you. <laughs> that's a whole nother topic, but yeah, that's amazing. That's really cool. And so you've got 30 episodes now, crunching tackles available at all the regular podcast places. Yeah. It's been, it's been really, really fun to kind of get into those issues. We get to kind of just talk about, um, you know, there's a lot of like sports podcasts that talk about what's going on in the yeah. game. And then there's a lot of politics podcasts, but oh, man. it's increasingly becoming merged. And so I think we found a really, really good niche and I think John and I, my podcast buddy, uh, he's from Liberty. He's still there. Uh, he has one more year left. He and I are just different enough politically and in terms of sports that it sparks some really, really good debate. And cool. We really like doing it. Yeah, it's that's a lot awesome. Of fun. That's so cool. All right, Chad, uh, great having you on today. Thanks so much for taking the time. And uh, I think this is very productive and I want to keep doing it. So we'll stay in touch and any ideas you have. And then uh, let's Make sure we're connecting with other people, especially in your generation and a cagey old guy like me. And uh, we'll just keep trying to make a dent in all this mess. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Steve. Thank you. God bless. You're welcome. God bless. Thanks so much. Well, there you have it. What a great opportunity to uh, speak to a great young man. Uh, In this case, happens to be a Christian. But we don't agree on everything, and Chad has some opinions uh, to the left, and, and uh, it's just a great example of hopefully where this show is going to go, who is this SOB, as I'm going to do more and more interviews and, and try to do more and more interviews with people that are very much not like me and are younger. Because again, like we said this during the show, that I think that we have a lot of cross-generational problems. We, our divide is getting deeper and wider because we don't converse. And we all need, whether you're a Christian or not, we all need to get better at conversing, treating each other with dignity and respect, actually getting back to the point in this country where we can agree to disagree without throwing stuff at each other and, and calling each other terrible things. Just a level of civility that uh, we're lacking. And as things get more challenging in our country, uh, hopefully more of us will become more civil and more willing to engage in conversation. Well, uh, who is this SOB.com? As always, the website, you can leave comments there. Uh, please uh, follow me, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, who is this SOB? The podcast available on all the major podcast episodes. This is episode 10, so there's nine others you can check out. We referenced my son's podcast a couple weeks back, uh, Son of an SOB, with our oldest son, Hayden, who's 25, getting ready to move to San Francisco. It's like, oh, 
Christian Sun moving to San Francisco. Uh, but that that's where we're going. A lot of great content there, interacting with some of the most popular podcasts out there, Joe Rogan, Ben Shapiro, stuff like that. Uh, uh, what was the most recent one? Oh, Nice White Parents, New York Times, did a pod, an SOB podcast on that recently. So again, all the podcasts are available wherever you get your regular podcasts. Who is this? SOB.com. This is Steve Noble. God willing, I'll talk to you again real soon, like my dad always used to say, ever forward. Ever forward.